and let people earn money, let people earn great money and have good possessions, etc. But let's not have this huge gap between the haves and haves not that we're seeing. So I think if we can sort of redefine that and educate people, you know, you can run a profitable or a surplus making organization. What you choose to do with that surplus, dividend it out, take it yourself, keep it in the organization, it's completely up to you. I try my hardest, I'm not going to say I do it all the time, I try my hardest not to look at my phone for that first hour. Welcome to the Beyond Capital podcast. In our purpose-driven world, leadership is increasingly crucial. Now, more than ever, stakeholders are demanding the integration of social values and causes in everything from shoes to soap to investments. We are bringing you the stories of leaders that are marrying profit with purpose. I'm Eva Yazari, CEO of Beyond Capital. And I'm Ed Stevens, CEO of Appreciate. And this is the Beyond Capital Podcast. Today's guest, coming to us all the way from Dubai, is Sunil Lavani. Sunil is the founder and CEO of Project Maji. Project Maji is a nonprofit that leverages solar technology to bring access to clean water across rural Africa. Previously, Sunil was a director at his family business, Binatone, a consumer electronics company working in Nigeria, Russia, and Dubai, and all around the world. Welcome, Sunil. So great to have you. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So let's dive in. Um, your your background, um, as we pointed out, um, was you know, working in your family business. Um, but then I think we met uh, probably five or so years ago when you were thinking of um, really taking Project Maji to the next level. And you've you've described yourself as an unashamed capitalist. And there seems to have been some turning point for you where you shifted your focus more to social impact. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. Um, yes, that, 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 that's right. I'm, I'm, I, I've been brought up in a, in a, in a family business. Um, uh, so, so, you know, from, from the age of as long as I can remember, business was discussed at the dinner table and at all family meetings. Um, and I really believe in capitalism as a, as, a, as a powerful tool, the profit motive as a powerful tool. Um, so I've been fortunate to be uh, living in a successful family and working in that family business, uh, which has taken me, as, as Ed said in the introduction, all, all over the world. Um, and I really found um, about five years ago, exactly when, when we met, that when I started doing some, some of what, what I guess at that time I'd call our CSR work, which was giving water to rural areas, it really captured me at, at that time in a way that, that it was a profound change in my life. Maybe it was timing. I was, I was 45 years old and uh, I'd, I'd achieved a, a lot of maybe what I wanted to in my life. And then I thought, this is, this is something that, that's really captured me. I've been blessed with everything I could want in life. Uh, and now maybe it's something I'd like to give back. Um, but what I was really interested in doing was giving back in a very sustainable way. Um, we, you know, the, the family gives to charities a lot and we have, we have a charitable school that we support. Um, but I really wanted to do something that was going to be going to have long-term impact and long-term sustainability. Was there a, was there a specific moment or event that inspired you for this or was it gradual? So, so I, I it's, it's a, that's a very good question. So there, there was actually a, a very distinct moment, um, where I 
I stumbled across uh, the watercourse, actually. So I was driving on a bush road uh, in Ghana, something I'd done many, many times before. Uh, but on this particular day, my driver stopped in, in, in the middle of nowhere, literally. Um, and I looked up and, and asked him, why, why, why have we stopped, stopped here? And he said, well, there's a, there's a puddle of water uh, in the road, so I can't, I can't drive on. But we were in a four by four, so I just said, well, what, what's the problem? Just drive, drive through the water. And he said, well, I can't drive through the water because there's a couple of kids in the water. Um, now, he said this in a very nonchalant way. He's a Ghanaian guy, so he'd probably seen this, you know, a thousand times. But to me, it was certainly something, you know, something I probably read about or seen a Nat Geo documentary about. But I'd actually never seen this up close and actually got down and asked these kids what they were doing in this water. And they were actually very happy. They were sort of playing and splashing around and even drinking from this water and collecting uh, uh, they're filling their buckets from this water. And they explained to me that they were actually on their way for a, their regular two-hour walk to collect water. And this was a profound moment for me where they said, luckily, luckily, it rained last night. And this puddle of water was just about 100 meters uh, from their village. Um, so they collected that water. They had the time to play. Uh, and they would go back. And I, I just remember thinking that how could anybody consider that source of water lucky? Um, considering everything that we have in the world, and there are still families and communities uh, that live like that. And that, that was the, the exact aha moment where I, I started on this journey. That's an incredible story, and I think really shows the power of bringing clean water to rural areas. Tell us specifically what Project Maji does. Just following on from that, from, from that incident, I went up to the village and found out um, that the village did in fact have a hand pump, which was, which was how they were a few years earlier collecting water. An NGO had come in, installed a hand pump. But then a year or so after it was installed, it broke down. Um, and nobody knew about it. Uh, and the village had no money to fix it and no know-how to fix it. So actually, when I wanted to address this, this, this water problem, I came about it from, from looking at what is the current solution? What are people currently providing? And that, and that was indeed the hand pump. And then very critically for me, I think, was, was taking what, what was the expertise that I had. I knew, I knew nothing about water, but I did know about um, manufacturing in China. I did know about electronics. Uh, and we had a small solar division uh, within the family business. So I, in fact, asked a couple of my engineers, challenged them, if you like, actually, to say, look, there's this broken hand pump in this village. Can we repair it, but repair it or replace it? with a solar powered pump so that we can get rid of this antiquated non nonsense that people have to physically pump uh, water and then do it in a completely sust energy sustainable way. Um, and about four months later, uh, they came up with a solution. Uh, we installed it. It was in fact World Water Day, 22nd of March, 2015, where we opened the tap, um, the very first tap. Um, and it was, a, it was a great moment for me. But, but, but the mission of Project Maji was going to be to go and provide water to villages in a fully sustainable way um, in terms of us being able to maintain them and be financially sustainable and be environmentally sustainable. So hence the solar power and making sure these, these, we, could, we could then expand this uh, and, and grow across the continent. I hate to ask this question, but it's just gnawing at me. If the village was having a hard time keeping like the handle on a pump like fixed, how do they manage to maintain a more complex like solar pumping system? 
So, so, so that, that that's an excellent question, and and that's really what builds on again what 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 we do at Project Maji. So, so we we always say at Project Maji that our work starts after we install the pump. Um, the pump is just you know, stage one in then what Project Maji has to do. So, we install these facilities um, in the village. We have um, we a very a very critical point which I actually found even from that village and and many many villages across the continent um, is even with a hand pump, it's very common that the villagers pay for water. Um, they pay a very nominal price. It's 0.1 of a US cent for a liter of water. Um, but that practice exists. So what was happening even with the hand pumps was somebody is put in charge of that. They're supposed to collect the money uh, every time someone collects a bucket of water. And that money is supposed to sit in a fund to fix the hand pump as and when it breaks. Unfortunately, and I know Africa too well, um, that you know this money as and when the pumps break that money is nowhere to be found, or it's been spent by the by the person who who was collecting it, and uh, and and that sustainability model doesn't exist. So I actually I took that concept um, where people are paying for water, and said, okay, we're going to install these kiosks at our cost, um, but it's really critical that you are going to pay for the water for for two reasons. One, because they have to value it; it's a it's a product of critical value to them. They have to put a financial value to it, and secondly, that was going to make us sustainable by having a revenue source that we could then go in uh, and make sure these things were working all the time. Um, and we put mobile monitoring onto each of these kiosks so that we also know if they're running or not running. So then we can send someone in uh, to make sure that we, we repair them if something goes wrong. And you work so closely with the local community. Um, and I, I can't imagine that that's easy in each village. Um, tell us a little bit about what that's been like and maybe some challenges that you've encountered, um, you know, or resistance even. That, 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 that's, that's a really good question. Um, we, we, we have to go into these villages um, with uh, blessings from, from, from well, the top down or the, or the bottom up, whichever way you look at it. So, so we, need, we need government support. Uh, we need um, local assembly or local government support going down to the community. And then we have to get the, vill the village uh, buy-in. Um, as well, um, for all sorts of reasons, we want to make sure that the the the, the assets going to be protected um, and looked after. And, and again, sorry to say it, but you know, in some of these some of these communities, um, there can be theft or vandalism of, of expensive equipment. So we do have to make sure that the community has buy-in, and then that sort of built-in security. Once they approve us as a community, we kind of make sure that the security is, is taken care of. Um, but yes, we we always make sure. We go in with the local government who introduces us to the chief um, so that that gives us a little bit of oversight. So if the chief, um, for some reason, doesn't want to play play ball with us or, or, or wants to do something a bit mischievous, and it, and it, and it has happened, unfortunately, um, we have the local government, the local assembly who can come in and work with us to make sure that we get things uh, uh, back on track. Um, but again, we work in villages typically of about 1,000 people or less, so they're really, really small communities. So as I said, about, even about the security, these things are kind of self-policing because if someone decides to steal a solar panel, God forbid, you're depriving you know, your, your, your neighbors, just a thousand people, um, uh, of their access to water, which is critical. And, and in a community like that, I'd be pretty sure that someone, someone's going to know someone who stole the panel, for example. You know, you're gonna, you, uh, it it self-polices that way. And at the same time, I have seen it in a couple of incidences where, in fact, we've seen... Um, village chiefs 
uh, where we've gone in and we come with the local assembly and we've said we want to provide you with water and the village chief has actually had the audacity to ask for a uh, gift, shall we say, um, before he'll give us uh, the permission. And again, what we found uh, in these cases, using, using that same term of self-policing, is the community has actually rallied around and actually spoken aggressively to their chief. And, and if you know anything about African rural communities, that's a definite no-no. These, these, these chiefs are like kings and they're treated with respect and, and you would never talk down to them. Um, but I've seen it with my own eyes where the community is has at least verbally uprisen against the chief and said, look, these guys are coming in. They want to give us water. Don't, don't you dare for your selfish means um, uh, uh, try, and, try and hinder this. Um, those are some of the challenges, but, but I do want to caveat that, that those are few and far between. By and large, we are, we are really very well welcomed uh, and very well accepted um, uh, in these communities. So what about the economics? Do these installations make money? How long does it take to pay back the capital of installing them? So, so I, I, Beyond Capital deserves a, a huge shout for this because, as Eva said, in the very early days when I really didn't know what I was doing in, in this, I just wanted to know I wanted to go out there. Um, but, but, but Eva and, and her team really helped with some of the early financial planning, actually. And this was, this was financial modeling, um, which was an immense help to me, actually. Um, we've played with, with a number of different models. Uh, and the interesting thing... The interesting thing for us was really when you look at rural water supply uh, and certainly the way that we're doing it with a, with a solar-powered kiosk that pumps about 5,000 liters per day, um, one, one kiosk costs us about 15,000 US dollars to install. That's, that's, that's a turnkey project. That's a supply of the equipment, importation, delivery on site, installation, getting permissions, all the overhead cost of my team. That's a complete turnkey cost. Um, which I still think is, a, is an extraordinarily low cost That's compared cheap. to what else is out there. It's very cheap. It's, 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 it's basically 15, 15 US dollars per person and you give access to water. Um, where we get a lot of pushback is people saying, hang on, $15,000 to put this kiosk in a remote village. That sounds like a lot of money. But when you break it down, um, as I said, $15 per person, it's actually remarkably cheap. Um, and then, as I said, we charge point, point 0.1 of a cent uh, for the water. So the current model that we have um, is that we, we, we take sponsors and donors uh, to come out and, and, and pay for the capital, capital cost. Um, and then Project Margie covers all its oper operation uh, and maintenance expenses from the water revenues. Now there is a model, there is a model that can actually repay the whole capital cost, um, but it will take about 12 to 15 years. Um, and we are, this is the interesting challenge that we found because we, we are restricted by two significant numbers. We are restricted by the fact that we sell, we, we can maximum sell 5,000 liters of water per day. That's our production capacity. And very critically, we're also restricted by the price that we charge because we actually charge a humanitarian price. We, we don't charge a cost reflective price. Um, you know, two US cents per bucket, 0 .1, 0 0.1 cent per, per liter is the price that the village agrees to pay. Um, and, and so that limits our revenue to about $100 per month or $1,200 uh, per year. And if you extrapolate that out and then you add interest costs, et cetera, that's where you come up with about you know, 12 or 15 years before, before you can pay that back. Um, so knowing that our revenue stream is, is 
um, uh, limited by the market that we're operating in. Um, we are working very, very aggressively to bring our capital costs down and our target within three years is to have that below 5,000 US dollars. If we can do that, then we can have a full payback model within five to seven years um, that'll make us completely sustainable. We don't have to rely on grants, donations, um, anything like that. We can be completely funding by development finance model. So that's really where, where I want to get to. How many countries are you in now? I know you, you had a, a large presence in, in Ghana, but maybe you could just break that down for us. Yeah, so, so, so Ghana remains our, our main base, and, and we started there because the, the, the family business, well, that, that's one where, where, where I saw that the kids in the first place, and the family business has a big base there. So in the early days, we had a lot of basic in, uh, um, business infrastructure there to support us. I didn't have to build an accounting team and HR team and logistics team, et cetera, because we had it there as a family business. So Ghana remains our headquarters for that reason and our, and our, our main focal point, and we have... Uh, as a current count, more than more than fifty locations working in Ghana, um, and we have about I think again now as a current count about eleven sites in Kenya uh, working. And then it was very key for me in terms of again modelling this out. I wanted to make sure that we really nailed this and we sorted out all the problems ourselves in Ghana before we went to another country. And then we run Kenya on a on a on a bit of a test model. Um, because what I want to do next is go to places like Nigeria and Rwanda, which are next on my, on my plan, with a franchise model. So actually what we're doing is we've learned all the lessons in Ghana. We're testing out the, if you like, the franchise model in Kenya, but under our own stewardship and our own um, weight. So we'll figure out what are all the problems with the, with the so-called franchise model in Kenya. And once we've nailed that, hopefully we can go out to Rwanda and Nigeria where we have potential partners. And then basically across sub-Saharan Africa. You know, our, our, our goal is to get to a million people by 2025. We're not going to do that ourselves, and we're not going to do that in one country. Um, so we need to expand that way. Fascinating. And I'm curious about your, your, your nonprofit model. Um, if you can get the cost down to $5,000 per setup, do you think that this might become a, a, a for-profit style business or t tell me a little bit more about your thinking around, because I think a lot of people are curious about yeah. social enterprise, nonprofit versus for-profit and how the, those worlds come together. Okay. You'll be ready for a long answer because you hit, you hit a, a passionate point for me here. Um, so, 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 so for me, we start, we started off, um, uh, if, if you recall, actually, we did start off as a for-profit and we wanted, to, we wanted to raise venture financing. In fact, we met at, we met at SOCAP uh, three, four years ago when I was looking to get, to get some financing. And it was really interesting because at, we registered as a for-profit um, and I, I was becoming familiar with all these words like social enterprise and impact investment, which I'd never heard you know, even six months earlier. Um, and I, first of all, we put a deck together um, and we went to friends and family um, and I started to pitch to them. And the friends and family were like, you know, wow, what you're doing is fantastic and kudos to the, to, to the great work you're doing. But I don't understand this investment model. You know, surely you should come to us for a donation. Uh, why should we invest in this thing? And in fact, in fact, a number of them sort of questioned me that, you know, are, are, are you profiteering off, off poor villagers and things like this? They, do, they couldn't sort of get their heads around this, this idea. And then I went to a number of the other 
what I will call so-called impact investors. And by this, I'm actually talking about, frankly, normal financial institutions that have set up impact investment funds. Um, and they said again, you know, love what you're doing and, uh, you know, we'd love to support you, but your financial returns are, are you know, below, below market for us. And that's where I actually got really frustrated because I thought, you know, it, the, the, the numbers I shared with you earlier, you know, we, we restrict our revenue because that's what's required for us to serve that market. Um, but I was actually quite pleased that we could still serve that market and show a financial return, um, albeit a relatively small one. Um, but these impact investors didn't want that. So, so first of all, I, I'm, I'm a big proponent of, okay, and I know there are firms like, of course, Acumen and, and, and Bamboo and, and yourselves work on, on this kind of a model as well, where impact comes first and financial return comes second. And I'm a really big believer in that. And, and that stems on to me to, to, to the next point about just terminology, about not-for-profit and for-profits and social enterprise, because does a social enterprise have to be a for-profit or not-for-profit? I don't think it really matters. But I also sort of redefine in my head the, the phrase not-for-profit. I actually much prefer the phrase not-for-dividend because I actually strive to run Project Margie as a for-profit business. Um, but you know, in the not-for-profit world, you don't use the word profit, you use the word surplus. But I will strive to make as much surplus um, as possible. The only difference is I'm not going to dividend that out. That's just going to stay in the organization. So the, I, I think this terminology has, there's a lot of vagaries around it and, and, and there's some antiquated um, uh, ideas uh, around this. So I think if we can sort of redefine that and educate people, that you know, you can run a profitable or a surplus-making organization, what you choose to do with that surplus, dividend it out, take it yourself, keep it in the organization, it's completely up to you. But this terminology shouldn't be what holds people back. And I'm, I'm, I'm a firm believer um, in that. Yeah, and on, on this podcast, we believe that business can be a force for good. Um, and we've interviewed all sorts of different models to, to bring that to life. Um, and so thank you for explaining more about what you do. I want to pivot to Sunil and his morning routine. Oh, yeah. This is our <laughs> favorite part of the show right here. It is in many ways because we want to know from you how you prepare for the day. What, what, you're, what gets you up to ready to lead Project Maji? So I, I, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm early to bed, early to rise. Um, I, I like to be up uh, early in the morning. My, my, my wife and my kids, when they're at home, they're university students, but they're, they're, they're at home with us now. But they're, they're, all, they're all later risers than me. Um, so I actually get, a, get an hour or two in the morning where the house is peaceful. Um, I'll go sit. I'll go watch the news. The dog will come sit with me. We'll have a cup of coffee together. Um, I try my hardest, I'm not going to say I do it all the time, I try my hardest not to look at my phone for that first hour uh, or so. Um, and so I'll sit, sit, I'll sit, I'll watch the news, just update myself on what it is and just sort of ease myself uh, into the day. And the reason I do that is because I, 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 whenever I close my diary at the end of the day, be it five o'clock or seven o'clock or 10 o'clock, if, if it's a long day, I make sure that I plan my next day the night before. Um, and I don't want to have that interrupted the next morning um, by some, you know, urgent email that came in and also, or some, some WhatsApp message that suddenly throws my agenda out. Um, so, so typically it's just a, it's just a quiet morning um, for an hour, not disrupted by technology. 
Um, and yeah, then I'll go in the office and try and again start off my day the way I planned it the night before, before I really delve into all the emails, et cetera, which then sort of, you know, take over your agenda as they tend to today. Well, speaking of kids, um, I have two children. Uh, one's 23 and one's 21. So one's in university and one's just graduated. Um, yours are both in university. What's it like sort of having them at home and parenting them in the context of COVID-19 and all this going on? Have you um, discovered any sort of interesting new conversations or new aspects of your children? Or is there any th- tips or tricks that you found that have been particularly useful? I know everyone's thinking about this. That, 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 that's a great question. And, and we, so I, I, as, as you introduced, we, I, I live in Dubai. And my kids are both in university in the UK. And we got them back into Dubai 48 hours just before the border closed. Um, very, very glad we did that, even though the universities were te- technically still open at the time. They closed a few days later, but we're really glad that we're all you know, in lockdown together. And it's been actually a, a really, it's been an amazing uh, few weeks for us. Um, because even, even when the kids are here in, 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 their, in their holidays, for example, um, typically you know, we, we've got our own busy lives and the kids will go and see their friends and, and, you know, and we might have the odd dinner together or catch up, <laughs> catch up for lunch you know, uh, or, or on one day a week or something. But, but this has been fantastic. Everyone's got their sort of routines in the day. Um, I, I go down to the office uh, in, in, in the house uh, by, by 8, 9 o'clock. Um, they respect my privacy for that. And then um, I try and shut down by five o'clock if I can. Um, and we're very fortunate. We have a garden. We have a lot of space. Um, so we've set up a badminton court in our front yard. So um, we'll play sort of an hour of badminton. We'll play some table tennis. We'll take the dog for a walk. We'll, we've, got a, we've got a pool. So we'll swim together. We're very blessed in the environment that we're in. Um, uh, we'll cook together. We'll always eat dinner together. We'll play board games after dinner. So we'll get a good four or five hours together. And we haven't even touched the TV. Um, and we've had you know great robust conversations about be it about COVID, be it about Project Maji, what I'm doing, or be it about you know sometimes just anything else other than COVID because that's that's all, all you're hearing. Um, but it's actually it's actually been a a real fantastic bonding time um, for all of us. So if I, if I take one 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 blessing out of this whole crisis is actually uh, that's definitely been it. Yeah, I think a lot of people feel the same. What about sports though? Are you a sports fan at all? I'm a, so so I'm I'm a big sports fan and a big sports player. So 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 football or soccer is my is my is my you know, is, is where my heart is. Um, I am struggling with a with a couple of knee injuries, so my wife keeps telling me at fifty years old I need to give it up, but I'm never I'm sort of forced to give it up. <laughs> well, she's she's for, I'm forced to give it up by by social distancing, but I'll but I'll be back. Watch this space when when we can. Uh, but I really miss watching. I really uh, my my. Team in London is Arsenal. Uh, I miss watching them, um, but um, again, that's one of the really interesting things about just analysing the whole situation: um, how how this has hit everyone, every society, every industry, um, and it's going to be really interesting how we come out of it. And I, and I, I actually, I, I I hope for some profound change, actually, because you know, I, you know, I got into this whole uh, social entrepreneur issue as well because I just saw. An unfairness in the world, um, com- coming from a, an extremely privileged background, 
Um, and, and I think we got ourselves into a world of, 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 of frankly, greed and excess. Uh, and coming back to the point that, that Eva, you said earlier that, you know, I, yes, I, I am a capitalist, unashamed capitalist, but I think that's gone a bit too far today. And I, I think it would be great if there was just something of a rebalancing um, and let people earn money, let people earn great money and have good possessions, et cetera. But let's not have this huge gap between the haves and haves not that we're seeing. It, I, I would actually love to see a time where Project Maji does not need to exist. Um, you know, we, we would love to obliterate ourselves by having water provided to everyone or a time where governments or other philanthropists or other capitalists have enough money uh, to alleviate it. That, 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 that's, and, and, and I think, and I would like to think that, that this, this profound situation that is hitting the whole world at the same time today might, might just drive a change and, and, and see people change their attitudes and minds towards the less fortunate. I think it will. Here's hoping. Yeah, I, I think so too. And so just, I'm curious how Project Maji has been impacted by COVID. What are you seeing in the villages that you're working in? So, so it, it's interesting. We, we've been very fortunate because uh, as of now, um, people who'd committed to donate um, are, 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 have still donated and are, and are donating. So, so we're not affected actually like many, many businesses in terms of revenue drying up. Um, and we're still having, we're still engaged in many, many conversations uh, going forward. In fact, in fact, for the American audience, uh, um, Kyrie Irving, uh, the basketball player, has uh, been a big supporter of ours and, and, and funded a number of sites in Ghana for us. Uh, and we're seeing if we can expand that uh, relationship. So we've been, we've been very lucky that, that the, the revenue streams haven't uh, dried up. On the contrary, the issue has been, in fact, with with the lockdowns in Africa. Um, so. Kenya is still technically open, uh, and we are building three sites at the moment, but it's taking a much longer time. So while it's open, Nairobi does have um, a sort of uh, uh, invisible barrier around it um, that you need permission to come in and out. And then even crossing county boundaries, um, uh, there's a lot of police checking. So it's hindering some of the work, but not stopping it. And Ghana, until yesterday uh, or two days ago, did have a lockdown, which has just been opened. Um, so we can resume our work. We, we, we have been applying for permits that we are emergency services, certainly in terms of the maintenance of sites. Um, and uh, it's been interesting because I, I, I talked to my team on the ground first of all, and I said, I said, listen, we can apply for these permits, but first of all, you have to tell me that you're comfortable uh, to go out and work. And, and I'm so blessed to have such a fantastic team around me because they all, they all, you know, it wasn't even a question for them that, you know, if you can get us permission to, to, to move about and work, that's, that's what we want to do. So um, now we can start moving about again. But in terms of the fundraising, we've also pivoted a little bit um, just to sort of uh, touch people's minds and relevance with COVID is, you know, everyone knows now one of the, the biggest issue about disease prevention is washing hands with soap. Um, and that's prevalent in everyone's mind. But guess what? You can't wash your hands with soap if you don't have water. Um, so we're you know, highlighting the issue to a lot of people that you know, these villages don't have water. So the basic thing we've all been told to do every day, wash your hands with soap, these guys cannot do. Um, and I think that, that touches a bit more of a relevance today because a lot of people living in Western worlds can't actually imagine or place themselves in a position where they don't have access to running water for drinking or bathing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's that's just incredible. I don't I don't think that we have 
that level of visibility into what is really happening in, in such a large continent with over 50 countries. Um, I was also given the, the, the information that the tracking is actually quite sophisticated um, and that there's an ease of tracking because there are not so many international entry points into Africa. So it's pretty easy to go through the records and call somebody up and say, hey, you came in from Dubai, we're gonna test you. And so I think that that has that also helped the response. And then lastly, Africa is no stranger to, pandemic, to epidemics. Um, and so Ebola certainly, I think, uh, created a system that is functioning and still, still working now. That's what I uh, saw on the news last night. There was, an, there was a great piece that they did in Uganda, and they were totally on it. Yeah, it's it's. It, I, th- I think it has it has been very impressive um, ha- how they've managed to keep the numbers down. Um, you do, of course, have to have to think: are the numbers accurate, just in terms of the number of tests that may have been done? But, but you know, it, again, again, it's it, it's a, it's a real unfairness in the world because this is, you know, you you read all these things that this is this is a disease that affects rich or poor, and you know, black and white it doesn't doesn't really matter. Ironically, this is this is a middle class disease because it's spread, it's spread because of because of international travel. Um, and yet again, the poorest in society are being affected because planes flew in with people uh, and affected them. So, um, yeah, I, I've also heard the questions about the about the um, uh, the tracking being quite accurate, and, and 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 I hope I hope that is yeah that is the case. But I, I I think many African nations really do also have to balance that issue about you know these people do live hand to mouth. Um, so when you impose a lockdown on these guys. If they can't work for a day, they literally can't feed themselves for a day. So it poses a really huge dilemma for the leadership. There, I don't, I don't envy that position at all. Yeah, small and medium, small businesses and medium-sized businesses are really the backbone of the African economy. I would love for you to tell us, as we wrap this conversation up, where you envision Project Maji in five years from now, and what your vision is for the company. So, so, so five years, as I stated it, actually five years ago, my, my vision for 2025 was, was, was to serve a million people. Um, and, we, and we just installed that first site uh, where we'd seen those kids. Um, so I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, I didn't know how I was going to get there. Um, but um, it's, it, it, it's, it's overtaken me and, and I've had a tremendously supportive family and, and a team that works so hard and so diligently um, that have really helped us get to where we are today. And we see ourselves very well on the path um, to hitting that number. So already I've revised that number. While we'll still be a million people by 2025, in 10 years, we've got to be at 10 million people. So it's basically doubling every year. Uh, so we go from 50,000 this year to 100, to 200, to 400, to 800,000, to 1.6 million. And that's how we're going to reach our 10 million. Again, it's one of those things, you know, I don't have the details, but if we don't dream it and we don't plan it, it's not going to happen. So, um, yeah, I hope we get there. I hope we we smash that number. Um, and I, I just I, my goal for Project Margie that you know people talk about the water crisis. I want to make sure that Project Margie is in that conversation. That Project Margie is one of those organisations um, that was there and made a significant impact uh, in solving the water crisis as and when we do solve it. So if somebody wanted to get involved and help you reach those ambitious goals, how would they do that? Thank you. So, so, so our, our, our website is, is projectmaji.org. Um, Maji spelled M-A-J-I.org. Um, and all our uh, uh, 
connecting details and all uh, are on the site. Um, and then we're Project Margie on all the all the usual social media channels. Um, yeah, anyone support us uh, with a thumbs up, with a like, with a follow, with money, with suggestions, introductions. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, there, there are 800 million people in the world who don't have water. So even with my 10 year target of 10 million people, we're barely touching the surface. So, you know, we're not doing this alone. We're doing it with partnerships. We've got to do it with support. So yeah, anyone who wants to get involved and support us, there's plenty of room for people to be involved. And, and thank you for giving us the airtime as well. I think networks are also undervalued, but now they're more important than ever when we are all kind of virtually connecting. And I think that, as you mentioned, social media or liking or sharing is is a resource that people actually can have and they can use their power for good in that way. Spread the word. Absolutely. I think that's very true. Spread the word. So happy Earth Day. And oh thank gosh. you so much you. for joining us. I know it's not World Water Day, but happy Earth Day. And it's been, it's been great to, to reconnect with you, Sunil, and hear about the progress that you've made. And it's incredible. And um, I know you're a YPO Impact uh, Awardee finalist, which is also an incredible accolade. So thank you for joining us and, and having this conversation today. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure to chat and catch up. Thank you very much. A true social entrepreneur. Very inspiring story. Thanks so much, Sunil. Really great to have you. Thank you. Take care. Once again, it's clear that a business leader with good intentions can create an impressive social, environmental, and ethical impact. There is always a way to put meaning behind the mission of a company, and we can all make a difference. You've taken the first step by listening to the Beyond Capital podcast. Thanks for joining us. Don't forget to rate, review, and if you haven't yet, subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. For more information, go to beyondcapitalpodcast.com. You can follow me on Twitter at EA Stevens. And follow me on Instagram at Conscious Investor. Until next time. Bye, everyone.